I feel like this sermon series that we've entitled Ordinary, I feel like this is like the third time we're starting it. Because uh, we started it, and then we had a snow event, and then we had week two in, and then we had another snow event, and so we're starting it again here today. So if you're new with us, or haven't been with us for three months because of the weather, um, then we're going through this sermon series called Ordinary. And we have, we're studying through the book of 1 Thessalonians not because we're trying to celebrate uh, mediocrity or to celebrate things that aren't good or important or valuable or doing our best. It's, it's really about um, reminding us that ordinary is really the most powerful thing that God oftentimes uses. In fact, when we started this series, uh, there was four points that we threw up there. I'm going to throw them up here just so you kind of remind, are reminded of them as we jump back into this today. Um, I think I put this slide next. There you go. Ordinary, in our definition of it for this series, means that everyone can attain it, right? Uh, we all know certain fields and certain places where only the elite can be there or can do that. And, and when you read the book of 1 Thessalonians, you recognize that Paul is not describing a faith that only certain people can get to. He is describing a faith that any believer in Jesus can live out and, and attain and, and experience in their life. And so uh, we just want to remind you that when we say the word ordinary, it means that all of us can do this. And so when we talk about being a difference maker today, that God uses ordinary people, that all of us can make a difference as we listen and apply the things we read today. Uh, number two, don't equate ordinary with mediocre. We are not trying to advocate or push towards laziness, apathy, mediocrity. We want to be excellent for Jesus. But what does it mean to be excellent for Jesus? Oftentimes being, being, means being really good at things that look very ordinary, but they add up to something wonderful and powerful, influential in your life. Number three, don't miss the ordinary example of Jesus. So much of what Thessalonians presents to us is, is simply what does it mean to be an everyday follower of Jesus in the, in the everyday world? And he's going to talk as we continue to walk through this book, you're going to see that. And number four, is it time to change your expectations? Um, and I, asked, I put that question up there because we're going to get to a point here in a second where I think that change of expectations is going to be very helpful for us, okay? So when we talk about ordinary, uh, just to get this going again, refreshing in our minds, uh, this is what we're looking at, all right? And so today we're going to talk about being ordinary saints and being difference makers. Um, I have a picture here of a lady I want to show you. This is a lady by the name of Donalyn Andrews. And um, this week, something really cool happened in her life. Now, how many people of you, when you sign a contract or something, how many people are fine print readers? Like, they give you the, the, the thing that you're agreeing to, but then there's like 15 pages of fine print of legalese that's below that. How many people tend to be fine print readers? Anybody? 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 Because right, I've got a couple I need you to read for me if you are one of those. Okay, there's a few of you. That's a good thing, right? Now, I'm going to tell you a story that says we should all be fine print readers because Donalyn Andrews is a lady who teaches in the Atlanta, Georgia area. She's a high school teacher, teaches at a couple different schools, and she describes herself as being a fanatical fine print reader. And so something really cool happened to her. She and some friends were going to Europe on a trip. And because they all had ailing and uh, parents that were kind of in precarious situations, they bought travel insurance to cover their trip in case one of them would have to back out. And so the company that Mrs. Andrews found to give her, uh, her group, their travel insurance, uh, sent her the contract. And she immediately, as she always does, she says, she sat down and she began to read through the fine prints. And so she's reading along, and all of a sudden she comes to a page, to a section, to a paragraph of the letter that says, pays to read. 
And it went on to say that because no one reads the fine print of these things and that we want to encourage people to be readers of the fine print because that helps us later when you come and say, why don't you cover this? And we say, because we told you in the fine print we wouldn't cover this. They're trying to be, make people more, more fine print readers. They, they said in the next line this, that we estimate that less than 1% of travelers that purchase a travel insurance policy actually read all of their policy information and we're working to change that. It said the first person to email the company and to mention the fine print contest would win $10,000. And so she immediately hopped on the computer, sent an email to them to their email address saying, I read your fine print. Do I win? And they immediately responded back saying, yes, of the 75 people who have bought travel insurance since we posted this in there, you were the first person to read the fine print and read it and respond to us. So you get $10,000. And they also gave $10,000 to both of the schools that she works at as a donation in her name. So this really cool thing happened because they read the fine print. Now, all of you this afternoon, since football season's over, you got nothing else to do. So you can go home and just pull out all your insurance policies, just start reading through it. I bet you there's no $10,000 to be had, but you'll be smarter and better, better educated. Better, better educated. Better educated. We need a speech teacher up here. A better educated person than you would be otherwise, okay? And I love that story uh, for lots of reasons, but I like it because of the way it kind of ties into our, our lesson today. Now, I am not a fine print reader either. In fact, actually, I did read the fine print. Like through January and February, I was registering twice a day, every day for the HGTV Dream Home giveaway. Anybody else? I hope none of you else registered because I'm going to win. Because this week, the fine print says they're going to announce their winner of their million-dollar home in Montana on the ski slopes. And so I'll invite all of you to come visit me at my beautiful home in Montana. Um, and so what I read the fine print for was to see when they were winning and what's the cash option, because I know I can't afford a $2 million house to pay the taxes on that. So I needed to know what the cash option was. And I learned it because I read the fine print. And so when I win, we can all have a big old party and we'll celebrate together. Okay. And we'll take a church trip to Montana. It'll be beautiful and wonderful. All right. I don't know how we'll get there because I can't afford to get you there either, but we'll get you there. If you can afford to drive to Montana, it's like a 24 hour. I've mapped it out. It's 24 hours to drive it. There's an airport nearby if you want to fly. So I've got this all planned out, people. I've been dreaming. All right. So uh, when you and I read the fine print, we learn things. And so we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning verse 1 through verse 12. And I have wrestled with this passage since we didn't have church last week. I, I've, I've had to wrestle with it again this week. And I've wrestled with this passage because what it feels like in some ways is fine print. That Paul is, is standing and he's speaking, he's standing from far away, speaking through a letter to these Christians in Thessalonica who he had a chance, maybe a month, maybe two months to spend time with. He planted a church with these new converts. He did as much as he possibly could to teach them and to train them and disciple them the best he could. And then a riot was instigated by those who hated his faith and his preaching and he was forced to leave town. And, and he's wondered ever since he's been forced out of town. He's now two or three towns down the road, been forced out of other towns, <clears throat> excuse me, by others who did not like his preaching either and what the work he was doing. And so he's wondering what happened to the faith of these Christians, these young uh, Christians in Thessalonica who are facing some daily pressures and some persecution. And he writes back, and, and for whatever reason, he goes into this long uh, paragraph or two, detailing all the ways that he ministered to them. And I wrestled with it because there's lots of good things. It's wonderful. It's a rich text for sure. But I was like, well, why does that, how do we preach that today? How does this apply in Eldon in, in 2019? How does it apply to us in a way that is relevant 
and helpful. And so in some ways, it feels a little bit like fine print because it's lots of things like, well, does that may or may not apply if, if you're not a preacher. Does this apply to you? If you're not a Christian leader, does this apply to you? And, and so I've, I've wrestled with this for two weeks, uh, but hopefully today what we're going to come to uh, will be helpful for all of us. All right. And so what we end up with in this passage, though, is it feels like fine print, but really what you have, if you just stop and you think about what Paul is writing, is you have this beautiful and this personal testimony of what effective, Christ-like, kingdom-centered ministry and service really looks like and what it feels like in a practical way. It's helpful for anyone who is or aspires to be a Christian leader in your life in any way, shape, or form. It's helpful for all of us as we stop and think, well, what kind of leader should I follow in my life? Who should I listen to? And I think at a very ordinary, here's our key word where I'm tying this into our theme, at a very ordinary level, a very basic level, it is helpful for us as we consider how we, how I as just an ordinary Christian can help and can serve and influence people to move toward Christ in their life. Now, there are big impressive people and big impressive things that oftentimes we are drawn to and we respond to. But I'll bet the person that you are, the key parts of who you are, are not because of big influential people that you may never even meet in your life. The reason that you are who you are and where you are today, at least in a good way, maybe in a bad way too, is because of very ordinary people who did very ordinary things over a long period of time, and it shaped you, and it molded you, and it made you into who you are. Now, when you apply that truth to being a Christian, that can mean, how did I come to know Christ at first? How did I come to grow up in my relationship with Christ? Oftentimes, it's through very ordinary people, very ordinary moms and dads, very ordinary Sunday school teachers, very ordinary ministers, very ordinary friends and people who have encouraged and poured, and, and poured into and helped you along in very ordinary ways. But over time, that has shaped your heart into where it is and what it is today. And so when you read verse 12, you kind of get Paul's goal of what he was trying to do. And then we're going to read verse 12. Then we'll go back and read how did he get there. Verse 12 says this in our text, that Paul's goal for them uh, was to walk in a manner worthy of God. This is what he wanted for them. These new Christians, these new friends, these new people he had led to Christ, and this is, this is all I want for you. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I just want you to walk with Christ and, and to see the invitation that he's giving you to walk with him and to know him and to follow his leadership and his rule in your life, and I want you to daily walk that out in practical ways. And so that's Paul's heart for them. But then you go back and read verses 1 through 11, and you get a picture. Okay, well, well, how did he do that? Did he go out and buy the newest, fanciest technology he could get? It wouldn't have been a bad thing. Nothing, it wouldn't hurt anything. But is that going to shape that? Maybe a little bit. But, or is he trying to be the most flamboyant speaker with the funniest jokes or whatever he could do to try to woo people, to say, hey, keep walking those aren't bad things, but is that really the heart? As you read verses 1 through 11, I think what you find is the heart of, of Paul as a minister, as a servant of God, trying to influence people to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so I, I think that's practical for all of us, because I think if you're a Christian, at least I hope if you're a Christian, one of your desires is I want to influence the world around me. I want to influence the key people in my life so that they walk in a wor manner worthy of God, knowing and hearing the call of God over their life. I, I want to be an influence in that in some way, shape, or form. So how do we do that? Well, let's go back and read verses 1 through 11. 
or 1 through 12, actually, just to get, and and as you listen, I want you to begin to latch on, because Paul says so many things in this passage. This could be three or four weeks of sermons. It's not going to be, but it could be, right? He says a lot of things about how did he strive to influence and impact their life and to draw them closer towards Christ. Verse 1 says this. For you yourselves know. Now, I want you to just pause there. If you were to underline, and I know actually on the back of your sermon sheet, if you want like to doodle and draw things as I preach today, uh, sermon related, of course, if you would like to underline things, if you were to go through and underline that phrase, for you yourselves know, in this passage, you're going to find it appears four or five times. Paul keeps, under, keeps um, drawing them to say, hey, think about the experience we had with you. Um, think about why and who we were with you, okay? And so for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For ye remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so Paul outlines for them the reasons why and how he made a difference in their life. Very simple things in a lot of ways. Very ordinary things that are very powerful when they are done in the context of ministering and serving someone else with the purpose of helping them see and know Christ in a better and deeper way in their life. And so why would Paul do this? First of all, let's just get this out of the way first. Why would Paul go to all this length? Why is this important? Well, in Paul's day, just like there are, is today, there were people that would oftentimes be drawn and would just kind of travel around the countryside, going just from city to city, and, and their motives were to make money off of people. And so they would have flattery speech and pr- important speeches and powerful speech, and, and they were great orators, and they would manipulate people, and they would, they would say things and do things to try to manipulate money and, and prestige out of people. And, and when Paul was so quickly run out of town because of the riots that the Jewish folks started uh, against the church and against Paul and his teaching about Jesus, Um, I think there were probably people who came in after Paul left town and said, you know what, Paul is no different than these other uh, sophists or these other wise-sounding people. He just came into town on on a wind and and he took off and uh, he just wants your money, he just wants your attention, he just wants your popularity, he just wants the fame. And so Paul writes back to say, our ministry to you was not like that. 
We did not come into town wanting to get rich off of you. We did not come to town wanting to manipulate you. We just wanted to get the gospel to you. That was our only desire, our only intention for you, was that you would know Jesus, that you would know the gospel. And so he, he, he kind of outlines all of these things, I think, in that, in that reason, for that reason, excuse me. And so as he does so, I just want to outline this, I guess, in three ways. We're going to walk back through this passage, and I want to look at three um, ideas that helped Paul to be a difference maker that he kind of unpacks. The first is this. I think that being a difference maker, number one, means that you push through the pain and the pressure that comes with serving. That being a difference maker, whether it's at a leadership level or whether it's just at a mom and dad level or just as a friend level or, or a cultural level, being a difference maker means that you push through the pain and pressure that comes with serving. You see, serving Jesus is hard. We live in a culture where we always like to seek the path of least resistance, the easiest path, the most comfortable path. That's what's sold to us is what's best in life. But serving others for Jesus is always going to bring certain pains and pressures that we must be willing to embrace and to push through if we're going to see Jesus make a difference through us. And so think about Paul, what he wrote he talked about in verse 1 and 2 again that our coming to you was not in vain but though we had already suffered if you go back and read the book of Acts it tells the story of, of what happens in Philippi that he mentions that we, were, we suffered and been treated shamefully at Philippi you read Acts chapter 16 and you read the story of how Paul endured a great deal of pain there that's the place where he and Silas had been arrested because they were preaching the gospel by those who didn't like what the gospel was doing as it changed the lives of people it was beginning to hurt their, their pocketbooks. And so they, they instigated a riot. They got Paul and Silas uh, arrested. They were stripped, publicly beaten, probably naked. They were thrown into prison. Their feet were fastened into stocks. And it was a very painful experience, not only physically, but I think emotionally to have been gone through all of that. It would have been a very difficult thing. It was humiliating and so for Paul, having left Philippi in Acts 16, the next place he comes as you turn the page into Acts 17 is Thessalonica. And so he shows up in town. His body's probably still beaten and bruised. His body still has the scars on it from just having been, been treated so poorly in Philippi. He's got the emotional scars. Just imagine being publicly beaten, naked, the embarrassment of that, just the public shame of all of that. That would have been uncomfortable for for him. And so he left Philippi, came to Thessalonica with the scars of thinking, man, is this really worth it? That was hard. That hurt. And so what does he do? He says that he found boldness to keep preaching. But before Paul wants us to think, oh, Paul's a hero, where does he say he found his boldness to keep pushing forward, to push through? Remember what he says there? We found the boldness in our God which is a reflection to say, you know what, if you're going to serve people, if you're going to try to intentionally reach out into the lives of people and say, you know what, I have found this Jesus guy, and he's made a difference in my life, and I would love for you to know him, I would love to help you grow in him, and just the process of that, of engaging another person's life, is going to have some, some pushback. Sometimes it's going to be more violent and harsh, like Paul had to deal with, and sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes it's just the rejection, or they don't seem to be interested, and that hurts your heart. And, and you think, well, man, is it worth it to keep pushing through? I, I don't know if I have the strength in myself to keep doing that. But what does Paul do? Paul refuses to be intimidated 
by the pressures and the pains that others were bringing into his life. And because he refused to be intimidated, he realized, you know what, I'm not called to to win the approval of people. I'm just called to preach Christ. He found the courage in his God to get up and go again, to get up and try again, to get up and serve again, to get up and preach again. And so he, didn't, he wasn't intimidated. I think he relied on prayer. I think some of the most intimate prayers you will ever have is when your heart hurts over someone that you love and you're trying to help them grow or to find Jesus for the first time or you're helping them to grow in their faith. And you pray because, God, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to change this. This hurts. This is hard to care. It's hard to care. And so it's easier to say, I don't care, and just walk away. But Paul didn't do that. He pushed through and he stayed on course. And so I think his example uh, to us there is if you want to be a difference maker in someone's life, there's going to be moments when it feels painful and maybe there's a pressure to say, you know what, is this really worth it? Maybe just quit talking about that or quit praying for that or quit caring about that because it's a lot easier if you don't care. But that's not the example of Jesus to us. It's not the example of Paul to the Thessalonians. And that ought not to be our example to others as well. That I'll push through the pain. It's going to hurt. I, I, I'm gonna, when I talked about that question about um, do I need to change my expectations, too many of us think that following Jesus is an easy thing. And that's never the way of Jesus. That's never the way of the apostles. And that's probably not going to be the way that we live either. Walking with Jesus is going to have some pain and some pressure to it. But in our God we have the strength to push through and say, you know what? This isn't about me. This is about serving Christ and getting his name known. And so uh, there's this difference maker, number one, that pushes through the pain and the pressure that comes with serving. Number two, I need to go quickly here. Number two, the difference makers that diligently pursue a purity of motive and method as they serve. In verses three down through verses six, down through verse six, Paul goes to great detail to describe the purity of motive that he had, that my motive was simply that you would hear the gospel and have a chance to know Jesus. I didn't come seeking financial gain from you. I wasn't trying to flatter you into thinking I'm something I'm not. I just came simply preaching. I didn't want your money. I didn't want anything else except for you to know Jesus. So he talks about the purity of motive and that instructed his methods then. So he didn't manipulate them. And he worked hard to try to provide for himself in many ways. Let's think about some of the words he uses here. Look at verses three and four real quick with me. He says, our appeal does not spring from error. What does that mean? That idea of error is the idea of deceit. But it was firmly based. I simply taught you what the Bible tells you. I didn't add to it. I didn't invent things. I simply preached to you this reliable message that we've been given to. It didn't come from impurity. That in word impurity, some of your Bibles might use the phrase uh, that pure motives. Uh, I had pure motives when I came to you. And that word for impurity, usually in the context of the Bible, talks about sexual purity uh, or sexual things. And so maybe Paul, in, in a culture, in a world, if you stand up and say you can do whatever you want sexually, you're going to find a lot of followers. And that was true in Paul's day. That's true in our day. Maybe Paul is saying, you know, I came with purity in my speaking, that God does call us to be self-controlled. God does call us. And I didn't come and say, hey, there's temple prostitutes if you just follow me. Like many of the religions of his day, there's all kinds of ways you can integrate integrate sex into into, uh, their religion to get followers, to gain people's attention, to get their money. But that wasn't what Paul was doing. I came purity. My message didn't come from impurity. Or maybe it just simply means that other people take that to being just, it's just the idea of I came with pure motives. My only motive was that you would know Jesus and it didn't come with deceits. And he goes on to talk about, I wasn't trying to please people. I just wanted to please God. I wanted to do the right thing by God. And if that, if people were like that, that was okay. If they didn't, that's okay too. My only audience was to please God first and foremost. 
Now, it didn't mean that he didn't care about what other people thought because he goes on to be, in the next verse, to say, you know what, I was very careful not to use flattery or to come with a pretext for greed in verses 5 and 6, nor did we seek glory from people. In other words, his motives and his methods, he worked really hard to purify them, to say, you know what, the only reason I do this is for God to be glorified and the people to know him. Uh, this isn't about me. This isn't about anybody else. It's about God and people knowing his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> And so he runs away from those kinds of things. And those are all temptations that all of us, um, the, from 2,000 years, religious people have, have struggled with, with flattery, greed, and, and self-seeking glory, and using religion as a way to do that. And so it, it just calls upon us to say, hey, daily, we must purify the pride, we must purify um, the fear, purify the things that would cause us to, to be different, to have an impure motive, and thus to have impure methods as well. And finally, the third thing I would have you see is this, that difference makers radiate a parental love and devotion that guides their actions while they serve. That difference makers radiate a parental love and devotion that guides their actions while they serve. This is a sermon in and of itself. Again, we weren't going to do that. Um, we're about to land the plane here. But uh, I just want you to get this, right? The first part of the first six verses are, are a really cool foundation to say, this is how you be a good servant. This is how you be a good minister. This is how you be a good Christian leader in any way, shape, or form. Those are good foundational things. That's how you communicate truth in a way that has integrity to it. But it gets beautiful from this point on. From 7 through 12, Paul says, you know what? I came and these are the things that I did not do. I didn't come and try to flatter you, tell you what you wanted to hear just so you'd listen to me. I didn't come seeking with greedy motives. I didn't do all these things. But in verses 7 through 12, he says, this is what I did do. And listen to what he says in verse 7 and 8 again. But we were what? We were gentle among you. We were like a small child, like a nursing mother taking care of her children being affectionately desirous of you. I don't never use those words in a sentence before before reading that, but but we were affectionately desirous of you. In other words, he has this isn't coming from just doing the right thing. This is from a heart that that loves these people. And so because he loves them, because he has this love, uh, he was gentle with them. And oftentimes when we think of Paul, we don't think of gentleness. We think of him being driven and and he was he was firm in his communication, he wasn't afraid to be the be the tough guy. But there's this gentleness that he brought with them, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children who was willing to give greatly of herself for the benefit of her child. So he goes on to say, being affectionately desirous of you, we were not ready just to share the gospel only with you, but also our own selves, that I would open up my life and I would love you and I would care for you like a good mother would. And so there's this beauty of, of that. As, as you continue into verses 9 and 10, you remember our hard work, just like a, a mom would do, working hard for her family. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. Again, we didn't want your money. We just wanted you to hear about Jesus. So your witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless. In other words, those integrity kind of words that said we weren't out to deceive you, to lie to you, to, to, to defraud you. And then he gets to verses 11 and 12 to the last image that, for you know, like a father with his children, 
we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. So there's both sides of it. There's the gentleness and there's the firmness. There's the gentleness that I love you and I will give my life for you. But there's the firmness that says, I want better things for your life. I want you to know Jesus and to follow Jesus and, and to walk fully in his ways. And so those words, to exhort, is the idea of, of pressing upon God's people the need to live a life of godliness. It can almost come as a rebuke sometimes. Or the encouragement is the idea of, of seeing good things at work in someone's life, saying, I see that good trait in you. Keep it growing. Keep growing in that. Keep allowing that to grow in your life, that encouragement and that charge or imploring, some of your versions may say, is the strongest of the three since it's the idea of insisting or requiring that a certain course of action be adopted. And so you've got both. It's not just, oh, I love you, I care for you, I'll give my life for you, but it's I'm calling you to something greater in your life. And that may come in many different forms and fashions, but I want you to see the parental love that he had for them. And so how do we become difference makers in, in our lives? I think we allow this text to shape us. And so I've got three questions, three areas of application here, and we'll finish. The first is this. If you are in ministry and in leadership levels of any kind, um, this passage calls us to check our motives. Why do we do what we do? Is, it, is there a selfishness that can intertwine itself in am I glory seeking for myself? Or am I daily allowing Christ to purify my motives so everything that I do in, in leading and serving Christ in that capacity is simply done for him? So if you're in ministry leadership, Christian leadership in any kind or way, shape, or form, this is a passage that calls us to check our motives and why we do what we do. Number two, I think this speaks to all of us when it just simply calls us to say, what are you looking for in a Christian leader? What are you looking for in a Christian leader? Paul made it very clear that he could have come as a flatterer. He could have come and told them everything they wanted to hear. And why is a person like that always attractive? Because we all want to hear how good we are. We all have itching ears, the Bible, other places and other places that I, I want to hear the things that just reinforce what I already think and what I'm already doing. I don't want to be challenged or called to repent. I, I don't like that. And so what are you looking for as a Christian leader? When you find someone who loves you and who tells you the truth, do you give thanks for that? Or are you offended by that and do you separate yourself from that? kind of environments? Are you looking for a, a superhero who's adored by everybody? Are you looking for an authoritarian who just is telling you what to do? Paul had some of those things in his life, but Paul led differently. He just simply led out of a love for Christ and a, tried to lead like Christ, like the Christ of the cross would lead. And so what are you looking for in people that you listen to in your life? And number three, are you pursuing this kind of character for your Christian life? While this passage is speaking to Paul and his leadership style, I don't think anyone who's a Christian should say, you know what, that's a trait that shouldn't be in my life too. I should be treating people that way. I should love people like that, whether I have a title or not. If I'm just going about my daily life, my ordinary life, this is what my life should be aspiring to. This is what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus who is walking in a way, in a manner that honors Jesus. And so this is what all of us are called to. You are called to be a servant in his kingdom. And our life together is part of God's message to the world. And part of the reason, if you go back to chapter one, that the message of this church rang out, it's because they, I think they were modeling what they had seen in Paul as they were loving each other and 
proclaiming the gospel and helping each other to grow and to become more in their faith in Christ. And so you and I are called to process this. And, and I hope that wherever you're at in your life, hopeful, hopefully, first of all, you see the Christ who inspires all this. This is a different kind of leadership that you find most places in the world, that Jesus inspires this. And those who name the name of Jesus as Lord, that we are called then to lead and to love like that too. And so wherever that may land in your life, I hope that that will be a helpful encouragement for us to just process and stop and think, how, how well am I honoring his name by the way I'm living, by the way I'm leading, by the way I'm serving the people in my life and in my world?